Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're returning to the book of Romans today, and we're going to be finishing up Paul's introduction to these initial benefits of our justification. And he outlines those initial benefits in the very first two two verses. You recall uh, following chapter 4, where where Paul shows us that justification by faith alone has always been the way of salvation. He now turns the, the page and describes the blessings that we have from this just standing. So chapter 5 actually begins the fourth section of, of the book. Romans is outlined in eight parts. There was the introduction, then there was that, that long uh, slog through the the depravity's dungeon in chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, and then the exclusive solution of the gospel. And now, all about a believer's assurance, the assurance that we have because of the gospel of God's righteousness. So now, from chapter 5 to chapter 8, Paul summarizes all of the promises and the privileges that we have because we have been declared right with, with God. At the moment, the very moment, a new believer places their faith in Christ, everything changes, Paul says. They go from guilty to forgiven. They move from enemies with God to to peace. They're no longer separated, but we have direct access to the Lord. We're freed from the power of sin and the curse of the law. We're no longer condemned, but but free in many, many more blessings that Paul will, will outline in these four chapters. And Paul writes this section to give us an unshakable confidence about our our salvation. And and he does that by by describing the blessings that that it has secured. We we said if these chapters had a theme song, it would be blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And that's exactly where Paul's going to go today. A foretaste of the glory that awaits us in, in heaven. What we failed to achieve as unbelievers, we fall short of the glory of God. We're now promised, and we have a hope that's related to that. And you, you recall Paul's main concern after his introduction of the letter in those early chapters is that we need to recognize our need for the, for the gospel. So he, he lays out the evidences that all people are guilty before God. The, the immoral man that rejects God, the, the moral man that misuses religion, and all men, because all are under sin. All fall short of the glory of God. But now Paul turns the coin over, and he shows that those of us who have received the gospel are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And so for the next four chapters, Paul proves this by examining the fruit of justification. And he doesn't just uh, look at the basket through the, through the cellophane wrapper. He actually opens the fruit basket up and pulls out the individual pieces and the pears and the apples, and he examines them. He holds them up to the light for us to be able to, to see justification, being made right with God, is not only the first blessing that God's grace provides to us. It carries with it many additional blessings. In fact, justification carries with it every other blessing of the Christian life. And so Paul begins chapter 5 with some foundational blessings. He tells us that we have peace and we have grace and hope 
and eternal life in Christ, the, the, the eternal life that the last Adam brings. In, in chapter 6, he's going to tell us we're dead to sin, but we're alive to God. Slave is, uh, or sin is no longer your master. You're no longer a slave, not to sin anyway. He'll declare that we're free from the law and its penalty in chapter 7. And one day, we'll even be free from this body of death. Who will free me from this body of death? And Paul says, Jesus Christ will will do that. And then finally, in chapter 8, he describes this new life that we now possess through the power of of the Holy Spirit. And the whole section, the final stanza, ends with a a passage that you know very, very well. I'm going to show you the context as we walk through all of this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am convinced, I'm persuaded. That's what Paul's trying to do to you. He's trying to persuade you that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's overarching theme is our security. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts this section. And there is nothing that will ever separate us from the love of God. That's how he ends this entire section. And all of those blessings come because we have been justified. Something happened to us in the past. It's at the moment of faith. And because of that, we have all the benefits in the present and we will be glorified in the future. That's a good summary of Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8. It, it, it's, it's hard to, uh, to underestimate how significant these four chapters are. And Paul wastes no time putting the dinner on the table. In Romans 5, 1 through 12, he skips the salad and brings the steak out, but declaring three introductory blessings that accompany our justification. There's positional peace, There's standing grace and a joyful hope, or as we have outlined it this way. All of these blessings are because we have been justified, or having been justified. We have a position of peace, verse 1. We access a standing of grace, literally uh, an access to God Himself, and then we possess a future hope, which is what we're going to look at today. We looked at the first two, we're going to examine the third one today. The first blessing that accompanies our justification is that we have a positional peace with God. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, we have peace with God, present tense, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And and he uses the word therefore, which shows us this is an application of chapter 4. All of that, chapter 4, about our faith being like Abraham's faith, that salvation is by faith alone. And if you have the faith of Abraham, then then you're justified before God. Here's the application of that. You have the same faith. You're saved the same way. And he uses an aorist participle here, having been justified, showing this is a, a completed act, and this completed fact is the basis for which all of these other blessings then, then follow. To be justified before God means that you've been declared right with God and He now treats you as if you are right with with God. And so now that you're justified, all of the blessings that come to someone who's right with the Lord are presently ours, right now. Or to say it another way, these possessions flow from justification. Justification stands at the headwaters. Some are in the present, like the one today. Some's in the future, 
but they all gush forth from justification. And the first one is our status as God's enemy has changed. We are no longer at war with God, or better, He is no longer at war with us. We now have peace with Him. But if that wasn't enough, Paul moves to a second blessing. He says that we have access. We access a, a standing of grace in, in Christ. It's entered through Christ, it's obtained by faith, and it's a nearness in grace. Look if you would at verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, we, we remain. So verse 1 says we have, verse 2, we have obtained. Uh, both noting these are new and separate blessings. And once again, these are possessions because we have been justified. Both of them come through Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the whom in verse 2. Through whom also. Verse 1 says, our positional peace comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very descriptive of His title. He's the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. That's Jesus. He's God. That's the Lord. And He's ours. We have this new personal association with Him. And He even uses the perfect tense here. We've obtained something, indicating that we've gained something that provides ongoing effects. And what we've gained is an introduction or access to grace. We, we stand or we, we remain in something. And the word that's used here for access means, uh, means to, to have access to the presence of, of royalty. And Paul says you now have an entrance that you didn't have before. And if you know your Old Testament, this word places you behind the veil in the old temple itself, which is unheard of and would be perilous and dangerous if something hadn't have taken place. Direct access or nearness to God was just not possible in the Old Testament. Or what was possible was, was highly regulated. I mean, once sin entered in Genesis 3, we, we have been graciously and rightfully separated from God's presence. It's gracious because we'd be consumed by His holiness. We barged in before the, before the Lord of glory. It's right because we're sinful. And he's not. That's one of the main themes in the Old Testament. And that theme is really the reason that many people poke fun of, of things in the, in the Bible, uh, specifically things in the Old Testament. I'm sure you've heard someone say, I mean, the Old Testament, it, it's full of silly laws. Like, you know, like you can't mix fabrics. You, you can't wear wool and linen together or eat certain foods like shrimp or, or whatever. And it's, you've got these rules about priests and sacrifices and animals. I mean, that's so outdated and, and strange. And they mock the Bible with that, with the law and with the ceremonies. I mean, sure, there's specific applications to the law and practices that had cultural expressions that fit Israel's very day. But the reason behind them, the purpose that those laws and ceremonies were given, they're not silly at all. In fact, it's timeless. That theme, that purpose is timeless and transcendent. I mean, the purpose of the law was to teach. It was to teach Israel and to teach us about God and about our world and, and about who we are. I mean, like, for instance, the law teaches us that there are clean things and unclean things in life. That's the reason for the, for the law about touching a dead body, for instance. It's not because Moses was superstitious or something. They're clean things and unclean things. And ceremonial washings, to, that, that God can cleanse you once you've been defiled by unclean things. 
but you have to do it His way. They're holy things. They're things that are set apart only for God's use. They're, they're to be used for the Lord's purposes, which can include you. And, and those holy things can't be mingled with the, with the, with the unholy things or, or the world. And, where the combination laws come from. But, but overall, the law taught that this God, which Israel worships, is separate. He's, he's unapproachable without a sacrifice because of our sinfulness. It's not that the ceremonies themselves are the point. It's the, it's the principle, it's the truth that, that's behind them. But Paul says now, now that you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, everything has changed. While access was impossible before, we now have an, obtained an introduction into God's very presence. We, we are literally in the holies of holies. We now stand in a position of grace. We were once held at a distance for our own protection, but we now have confidence to draw near because we've been justified by faith. And the fact that that's taken place is we can call Him Father and He calls us sons. And that access was granted by the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 17 in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. He is the end of the law, the end goal of of the law. It all pointed to Him. So with the coming of Christ, the old covenant ended and the new began. The shadows passed away. The sacrifices are no longer needed. The priesthood is voided and the, the temple is no longer the place that God would meet His people. The way is now open to all who will repent and and believe, not through priests or rituals or or anything else, but through Jesus Christ's victorious sacrifice alone. And this newfound access now assures us of an even greater access in the future, which then fuels our life with bubbling hope. Look, if you would, at verse 2 through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. It's the third blessing that accompanies our justification. It's new. We possess a future hope of of glory. Paul's focus for all of these blessings that he's been going over uh, with us, uh, blessings of our justification that accompany justification, we now enjoy. They're, they're all present. And he keeps the present tense here, even while casting his eye beyond this world. The hope of glory. That, that's something in the future. We, we have a position of peace with God right now. We have a current standing of undeviating grace. And we also exult in the hope of glory. A future reality. But the hope that bubbles up in our hearts, that we exult in, is something that we possess right now. That's a present benefit. The hope of the glory of God is something that's coming in heaven. And we know that because as we look in the mirror this morning or as I look around the room and see you today, you're not perfected yet. And there's no illusion about that in the Bible. But Paul says because of our justification, we boast, we exult in what's coming. And again, this blessing is presently ours and it's because we have been justified. Having been justified, we now exult in this hope of the, of the glory of God. So Paul now points to the end of God's work of salvation, which is our glorification. In, the, in verse 1, he points to the beginning. You, you have 
peace with God. You're made right with God. Now, and, and you have a standing uh, of, of this access to God, which is ongoing. And now the end. You, you, you have the hope of being made like Jesus Christ. And because that assures us, we rejoice. and We exult in what is to come, which is that we will be with Him and we'll be made like Him. Now, the word exult is probably not a word that you run around using. Ah, the weather is beautiful today. I exult in the fact that it's sunny in 75. You, you probably don't use that, that word. And some of your translations don't. They, they use the word rejoice, which means jubilation. Um, it's a mixture of two words. It means to boast and to rejoice. And so exult kind of meshes or merges, mushes those two words together. Boasting and, and, and rejoicing. You, you, you're boasting in an object and you're rejoicing because that, uh, of the object, or, or in this case, a promise. Now, I think it's natural when you hear the word to boast, you probably, like me, you think of something negative. I'm not supposed to boast. And that's true. There are, you're not supposed to boast in anything that, that's based on the wrong object, like yourself or what you can accomplish. But there's a positive form of boasting as, as well. I mean, the Apostle Paul actually said he boasted, in, he boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14 But may, I nev- may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world was crucified to me and out of the world. And another object that we can positively boast in, I found interesting as I was studying this past week, is in 2 Corinthians 10. Interesting, the Bible says that we can boast in our work. Boasting in our work is, is proper. 2 Corinthians 10, 13. But we will not be a boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God has apportioned to us as a, as a measure to reach even as, as far. And, and Tom Schreiner then quickly notes, as long as God receives the praise... For the good that's accomplished. It's your, your work it, that he fuels. So a good analogy of what proper boasting and exalting looks like is, is like what wells up inside of you uh, whenever you're watching a movie um, with a really bad guy, somebody oppressive, maybe like the Patriot. or And in the end, the little guy wins and he gives him justice and you cheer and exult over the fact that, that there is this, this victory. Or the reaction of people when their favorite team finally wins the, the World Series after a really long drought. People get so excited, they, they exult in the victory, they boast in their team winning, and they rejoice in, in that. They take to the streets and they celebrate and they exult in the victory. It's almost an uncontainable joy where you're ecstatic at, at the outcome. And Paul says when we think about the assurance that we have of sharing in the glory of God, it's almost an uncontainable feeling. It wells up in us and bubbles over like your ninth grade science project with the vinegar and the baking soda. You did that, right? Joel James has a great analogy in his book on, on heaven. He said the difference between what we experience right now and what we, what we will experience then in heaven is the difference between like reading a recipe versus eating the cake. He said reading the Bible about what awaits you is like reading the recipe and, and, and it gets your saliva going. But it's nothing like eating the cake. And experiencing God's glory will be the same way. Paul says we, we are reading the recipe here 
and we rejoice as we anticipate the cake, and we rejoice over the fact we exult in the fact that we're going to be able to eat it one day. And in Romans 5, Paul says, we boast in the hope of that. Notice that. Look, if you would, verse 2 again. It says, we exult in hope. He defines what that hope, hope of what? Hope of the glory of God. But we exult in this hope, which simply means assurance of something that's coming. I'm sure you've heard that before. The hope in the Bible is not like human hope. Hope in the Bible is an assurance of something that, that is future. It's fully guaranteed right now. We just have to wait in order to get it. It's a sure confidence that we'll have it, though. And we exult in that sure confidence. We rejoice that it's ours. We rejoice right now that, that it's coming. And our boasting, then, is a byproduct of that truth that comes because of our sure confidence. One commentator said that the concept, uh, concept is like, like a sure light shining afar to cheer the believer on their course. Uh, no, you're... You're out walking, you have a long way to go, and there's a light in a farmhouse way far away, or you're out in the middle of a boat, and you can see the, the lights of the shore, and, and, and if you're rowing, and it's hard, you, you, you look up every now and then, and you notice the light's still there, and it's getting closer and closer, and that spurs you along. And a Christian has no reason to fear the future because we have a divinely secured hope, and that hope is not just a place. It's becoming like the one who reigns there. I don't know what comes to your mind whenever you, you think about heaven. But this verse tells us what should come to our minds when we think about heaven. I mean, when you think about heaven, what do you, you think about uh, peace, a new, new body, a uh, city of gold, a mansion. All of those are promises. They'll all be wonderful blessings whenever we get there. But Paul thought about sharing God's glory. And that's the joy that awaits you. And the anticipation of that, he says, the absolute assurance of that brings us joy. And it fuels your life right now. Hope is the fuel that life runs on, along with faith and love. And this last promise is, was very intriguing to me because it really describes what, what we should long for as Christians and then, and then in turn what we should live for. I mean, I read this verse and it's like, yeah, yeah, the hope and the glory of God. I mean, that, that's very... Christian-like, but I started to think, okay, what is that? And do I actually, it, does that really motivate me in my life that, that, that I will, will be able to glorify God in a way that, that's per- perfect? And I think it's helpful because the, this target of what we live for has to be constantly reset, whether you're young or whether you're old or somewhere in between. I mean, if you're young this morning, and what I mean by young is 30 or, or under, so that includes a lot of you. You have to be regularly reminded as a young person to live for the right things. You, you can be easily distracted by the trinkets of the world. The world holds this out, you know, do this and live for that. Oh, look at this experience over here. And you haven't experienced a lot of things yet. So you go, oh, that looks nice. Oh, that looks nice. And you have to constantly be recentered. An older person isn't, isn't, doesn't fall as... Uh, uh, doesn't fall prey to that because we've lived long enough. We've chased some of those things. And we know they're empty. You can be easily distracted what to live for. Or you get duped and feeling like life is really long. i got plenty of time to, 
to, to live for God. And then you wake up one day and your life is almost over. Or worse, it ends sooner than, than you think. I was with my family this past week and, and one of them told me the story. He said the last thing that, that one of their friends said before, before they died, died of cancer, was wasn't supposed to end like this. It was his last memory of, of what he said. It wasn't supposed to end like this. And I thought when I heard that, but, but listen to me, the, the Bible tells us it's exactly the way that it's going to end. It's going to end in death. We just don't know how. Our problem is we just don't believe it. And if you're a young person, you need to be reminded of what to live for. If you're older, though, you don't need to be told uh, not to live for the world. You're not like a young person. You have all your life ahead of you. Most of your life is gone. And so you might be sitting here going, wow, I only have like a decade left or, or two or, or whatever, whatever it is. So you have to be reminded that the best is yet to come. <laughs> what is still ahead of you is what life is all about. So you run through the tape on the finish line. What makes life worth living is what awaits for you on the other side, and you're closer now than you ever have been, even though most of your earthly life is almost gone. And that's this hope that Paul is talking about here and the remedy for both, young or old. If you're young, it spurs you to, to strive toward the goal, and if you're old, it keeps you from being depressed by the fact that that day is coming. I mean, that's graduation day. But the promise is only true if you live for the Lord. If you don't, then you'll just... what you've sown in your garden will come up. And that's depressing if you've sown to your flesh. Spurgeon said, everything that nature weaves, time will unravel. And there's absolutely nothing that you can kindle on earth that will stay lit for all of your life and then burn into eternity other than a life for God. And there's no greater regret than coming to the end of your days and realizing you lived for nothing that really matters. In fact, I think two of the greatest distresses of hell are not fire and darkness as horrible as those things are and will be. I think it's hopelessness and regret that you'll experience. For all eternity, you will be in a state of hopelessness. You'll realize there is no hope. You're stuck in this horrible place without goodness and without God, and you'll regret the fact that you could have changed that. You didn't have to go there. You'll, you'll know that the time after time God reached down to you and called you to himself, but you would not come. But for those who have been justified in Jesus Christ, the, we have the opposite. We have the hope that we're going to be made like God, and we're going to be with him. Look at verse 2 again. We exalt in, in hope, and that hope is of the glory of God. This is Paul's theme over these four chapters. He starts with it, and he ends with it. He starts with it here in chapter 5. He ends with it in chapter 8. I showed you this verse in the, in the introduction. This chain of salvation. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He has guaranteed your future glory. He's predestined that you will be conformed to Christ's image. And he assures us that because we have been justified, we will be glorified. That's exactly what he does in, in, in these first two verses of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And that's what's coming. The very glory of God. And it's the glory of God. It's a genitive of source. We will experience whatever this is, it will be from God Himself. He's the source of it. And the glory of God is the end for which He created mankind. It's the goal of His redemptive work. This is why we fall short of that. Why sin, you know, iniquity, that, that the Bible describes iniquity and transgression as sin, like the, like the three-orbed description of of our fallen nature. We have iniquity inside of us. We, we have rebellion. We, we, we don't love God. We, we, we don't want anything to, to do with, with the Lord. We also transgress. There are lines that God has drawn. We step over those lines. We transgress. And then we fall short of the target. We sin. And the target is the, the glory of God. And in salvation, God restores the, our ability to hit the target. And He forgives us of our transgression. And He changes our iniquity, the iniquity in our hearts. He gives us new hearts. And the goal of His redemptive work, the fall disrupted and derailed that. Mankind's image was marred by sin in the fall, but through Jesus Christ, God restores that end. Which is why it says we're predestined to be conformed to His image. This chain of salvation in Romans 8 begins with justification and ends with glorification. Because justification inevitably leads to glorification. Because that's the goal of your salvation. It's nothing just to get us to a place called heaven. That's too small and truncated. The goal has always been that we would share in the glory of God. We would share in who the Lord is. And be in that perfect fellowship with Him just as the Westminster Confession, the Second London Confession says, we will glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's also what Jesus said in John 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, which describes what Paul means here. Look at what the Lord says right before He goes to the cross. This is His prayer to the, to the Father. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word that they may also be one, even as you, Father, and I are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And, and here it is, verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And you don't have that glory yet. Not fully. Which is why it's something that we hope in. We're being changed into that glory, the process of sanctification, from glory unto glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We're being changed from glory into glory. So it's already started. But Paul says it will be completed one day. And the promise of its completion is yours, as sure as you're sitting here, if you're a believer. But it sounds very common to say, I want to glorify God. 
What do you want to do with your life? Right? The, right, the, right, the Christian answer is, I want to bring God glory. That's a wonderful answer. That's a correct answer. What does that mean? I want to be made like my Savior. That's a, that's a wonderful goal. In one sense, that's promised to you. You will be made like your Savior. But in another sense, that's what we strive for. We, we, we work, we labor, we, we seek that in, in our lives. Have you ever contemplated what this means? I mean, do you really want to be made like Jesus? Is that, is that a motivation in your life? Do you sincerely want His character formed in you? Is that what you exult in, like, 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 like a team that's just won the, the championship? And I think when you, you, you think about that, we often say, peace, yes, Grace, give me more of that, I need more grace. But exulting in recovering the, the glory of God, will we lost in the, in the fall, do, do we really long for that? Maybe reading the, the recipe of what it will be like will, will be help. But if I'm going to rejoice over something that's, that's a gift from God, I, I need to know what it is. What is the glory of God? Well, it's the likeness of God. It's His character. It's who He is. I mean, He's saying that that you have the hope of being like the Lord, being with the Lord. I mean, God's glory is an expression of who He is, of His uniqueness. It's everything about Him that's splendorous. His His holiness is His uniqueness, who He is, Like, like the vision that 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 um, Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6, that the whole uh, throne room of God is full of His glory. His glory is an expression of the one that's sitting upon the the throne. and His glory is an expression of that. It issues forth from Him, like like Hebrews 1.3 says about Jesus Christ. He is the brightness or radiance of God's glory. And the brightness there means to shine forth. Alva J. McLean said Jesus Christ is the outshining of God's glory. He's a reflection of God because He is God. He's the very image of the Father. He's the glory of the Father. God's glory is the grandeur of His perfections. It's, It's what He expresses. And why does God express who He is? He expresses who He is. He expresses His glory to make Himself known to those around Him. And so others will see and treasure who He is and, and long to be with Him and long to be, to be like Him. And the Bible says that you were actually made for that, that very purpose, to bring God glory, to reflect Him, to experience that. A verse that you probably know well. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made, Or you might think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare, reflect the glory of God. All of creation was made to to express who God is so people would know Him. The context of Isaiah 43 is that Israel would not fear what may befall them because God's saying, I made you, and if I made you, then then I'm not going to forsake you in the midst of these human struggles. But the truth that's in this passage in Isaiah 43, that we reflect God, embedded in verse 7, stands up and proclaims something that shines over all the Bible. In the beginning, man was created in God's image so that we might image or reflect or represent the glory of God. We are His vice-regents on the earth. 
It's a New Testament truth as, as, as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Uh, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. Piper said that last one is not an admonition to do God a favor. It's a command to align our lives with His eternal goal. And what's His eternal goal? That we be glorified. We were created for His glory. God's great aim in creating and governing the world is that He be glorified and that people would know Him and would worship Him. I've created you for my glory. I have formed you. I've made you. And so God's glory is reflective And since God is the source of all things as the Creator, all glory originates from Him. He's the original. And we reflect it in our humanity. As image bearers, we represent God. We we bear His attributes. We reflect His glory in our work, in the things that we create. Taking dominion, making it better, taking the creation that God's given, and we... We, we, we glorify God by, by whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or all of our work. We, we, we reflect Him. We reflect His glory in, in acting like Him, imaging His character. So when we're kind, when we lead or shepherd others, when we forgive, when somebody wrongs us, when, when we love someone just because we, we have the love of God, not because of anything in the person, And we do all those things, irrespective of the results, meaning that whether they respond or or, or not, or even see where the kindness comes from. Are you listening? Paul says a believer longs to do that with their whole life. That's the effervescent, bubbling desire, rejoicing joy in their heart. And they're grieved when they can't do that. And they can't do it perfectly. Or when they fail, which we often do because we're not fully glorified yet. And as believers, there's a longing to do that better and to do that more. And so the promise Paul describes here is we rejoice, we exalt in the future promise that that ability will be be restored. We will one day be able to do that. Absorb God's glory, be in God's glory, make much of who He is. And not just the state that we lost in the garden, but a greater one. We will one day be able to reflect God's glory perfectly in Christ. We'll be even greater than Adam because we will be glorified. We will be like the Lord. You know, as I was thinking about these three blessings... It's interesting that when you consider this third blessing, this is something only a believer would be attracted to. I mean, unbelievers want peace with God. Unbelievers even want grace. Yeah, peace with God, grace. Give me more grace. But unbelievers have no desire to share in God's glory. In fact, Romans 1, 22, tells us unbelievers actually exchange God's glory for a lesser one. That, that's how they live. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. They want nothing to do with God for an image in the form of corruptible man. But believers, we rejoice over the promise that one day we'll be made like the Lord. What we failed to do as unbelievers, 
we now long to do with all of our hearts and to be more like Jesus. Tom Schreiner said, those who scorned God's glory in this verse, Romans 1, 21-23, those who fall short of God's glory in Romans 3, 23, are now promised a future share in it. And that should encourage your soul. Because when you look at yourself right now, with all of your fumblings and struggles and sins and weights, which doth so easily beset you, two steps forward, three steps back, and you see that and you get discouraged, Paul says, remember what's coming. You will be like the Lord one day, having been justified, and it's a guaranteed fact. My pastor used to say, I know the Lord's going to have to change me a lot before He takes me to heaven, <laughs> but as much as is in me, I want it to be as little as possible. And that'll be a lot of change, no doubt. But his point is, my desire is to be like Christ, and I want to pursue that with all of my might. And what helps me pursuing that is that this promise that the finish line is secured is, is ours. It's not if I will be there, it's when I will be there. My obedience and perseverance toward that goal is a testimony that I am Christ's, and He'll take me into His presence, and He'll make me like Him. I read the recipe, longing to taste the cake. What a day that will be. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We're going to end our service with something else that's supposed to build your hope, and that is the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to invite those who are serving to come, and I'll give you an opportunity to prepare your hearts in just a second.